Well, good morning, friends, and uh, Happy New Year to you. I hope it's going well so far. Looking forward to another year with you here at DPC. Sweet 16, right? I heard that expression somewhere. I thought that was clever. Sweet 16. Um, My name is Jake Patton, one of the pastors here, and uh, that was Tim helping us lead worship this morning. And if you're visiting with us uh, today, again, you're, you're most welcome. We've thanked the Lord for you. We've prayed for you. And if there's anything else we can do, uh, please stick around afterwards and grab us. We'd love to help uh, in any way we can. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you have your Bible, um, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're looking at the first four verses of this entire book. So Luke 1, uh, 1 through 4. And as we're turning and getting situated, uh, confession time. Um, I get really nervous and uncomfortable if there's ever like a Bible trivia or Bible category like on Jeopardy. Here's why. Number one, I'm really bad at trivia. Uh, Number two, if if a pastor or minister is supposed to be good at something, you've got to be good at Bible trivia, right? Well, a question popped up the other day, and I got it wrong. Okay, here's the question. The question was, who wrote most of the New Testament? Who wrote most of the New Testament? Not books, but quantity. Substance. Who wrote most of it? And originally, my mind went to, and maybe yours went here as well, went to Paul. I thought, all of those books, all of those letters, surely it's Paul. Well, if you thought that, you were like me, we are wrong. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's actually Luke. Uh, Luke wrote this gospel. He also wrote Acts. And those two books combined make up most of the New Testament. He's, he's responsible for most of it. I don't know if you knew this either, but Luke is not a Jew. He wasn't raised in the synagogue. He wasn't raised in the church. He's a Greek, and he was converted late in life. He's the only non-Jew writer in the New Testament. And this morning, he's going to write about the topic of certainty to a dear friend of his, Theophilus. And I find it very fitting and even very comforting to know that someone who's going to talk about certainty, someone who's going to talk about belief, is, is a convert someone who's looked at all the data, someone who's looked at all of the information, and who's now going to speak. Very fitting. So with that in mind, that's the backdrop. Let's read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll pray. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you indeed have mercy on us. May the meditations of all of our hearts and may the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Make it so we ask in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, over the last couple weeks, I was reading up on the topic of exoplanets, like a normal person would, right? Uh, Never heard of this before. Anybody ever heard of an exoplanet? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally new to the topic as well. But this article caught my eye. An exoplanet is a planet much like our own, but it exists light years away in an entirely different universe, an entirely different solar system, way out there. 
okay? Just like ours, but way out there. And uh, this article was um, basically a dialogue between a reporter and a scientist. I called him an astrologer in the first, uh, in the first service. It's an astronomer. He's a scientist who studies the stars. Astronomer, not astrologer. Okay, got it right for the second service. This one will go on the podcast, not the first one. So it's this interaction, this question and answer back and forth between this reporter and between uh, the scientist. And he, he's, he's won this international award because he was one of the first scientists to actually discover one of these exoplanets. Okay, and he proved it, and he's, he's won the favor of the international scientific community, right? And if we know anything about the scientific community, does it base its decisions off of feelings, off of emotions, or off of hunches? No. What does the scientific community base its decisions off of? Facts, right? Remember the scientific method when we were kids? It's got to be repeatable, right? It's got to have the same result every time, okay? They, they don't dally in theory, right? They deal with facts, cold, hard facts, right? And so this guy won an award for finding one of these planets. The question is, for us this morning, is what, what kind of proof do you think he needed to provide to the international scientific community to prove the existence of these planets? Like, you and I might think, okay, like, let's see, pictures, you know, let's have, like, um, somebody go visit and bring back, like, soil samples. Like, we want, we want hard, we want fast, we want solid data, Right? especially if these things are like light years away in other galaxies. Like, that's the kind of proof we want. Well, here's the irony, and, he, and the scientist even admitted it. No one has ever seen any of these exoplanets. No one's ever seen it. And yet he's won this international award for finding it. And we go, okay, you know, my, my skeptical eyebrow, if I had one, would start to raise and go, hmm, sounds fishy. Sounds like a fish story, right? How... I, how could you win an international award for something you have never seen? How could you do that? Well, listen to part of this article. This is, again, the interaction between the reporter and the scientist. This is, this is how he explains it. When asked by the reporter, he says, your discovery of this exoplanet didn't actually come from your actual seeing the planet, did it? He was open in his response. No, all of the evidence is, is indirect. In fact, no one has seen them but we see their impact and conclude that they must exist. Our focus was on the sun that was in the middle of this galaxy. It wasn't on the planet. It was on this sun, like star, and the periodic changes in that star. Something was obviously orbiting that star on a regular basis, and it was causing those changes to occur. And this is, again, where we start to scratch our head and go, you've never seen it. How can you prove something that you've never seen? and win an award for it altogether. It doesn't make sense. And, and tell me if, if you would agree with this, this statement, because we're starting to sense it here in this, little, in this little story, but when it comes to like absolute certainty, when it comes to undeniable proof, when it comes to our very belief, we don't like indirect evidence. We want direct evidence. We want eyewitnesses. We want cold, hard facts. I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to prove it, Right? And especially when it comes to claims about Jesus and about who he is and about some of the promises, we want direct evidence. But like in this, in this case with these, these scientists in, in, this, in this world of science, they're very comfortable with indirect evidence, right? So much so that they'll give international awards for it. You can actually prove things exist by 
uh, by this kind of evidence, this indirect evidence. And again, just to make sure we, we kind of get this in our head, because we're going to be using this language throughout the sermon, what's the difference between indirect evidence and direct evidence? You and I this morning, we have indirect evidence that a janitor was here this week. How do we know that? Because we look at the results. We look at the products, right? This sanctuary is very clean. We have great folks who take care of our place. Do you have direct evidence? Did you see the janitor? Nope. I did. I saw her. She was here. But you don't. But with absolute certainty, you can say, okay, the janitor was here, right? That's indirect evidence. And what Luke is telling us here at the beginning of the gospel is, is life with God and belief in God and certainty with God for, for people like Luke, for people like Theophilus, and for people like you and me, in this age and stage of, of redemptive history, a lot of our certainty comes from indirect evidence. Some people do have direct evidence of God. Some people have seen Him. In the Old Testament, remember Moses got a glimpse of His glory. Jacob wrestled with the angel. There was this, this Middle Eastern community for about 33 years that got to see God in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son. But for the rest of us, again, like Luke and Theophilus, we have only indirect evidence, nothing direct. We haven't seen Him. We haven't heard Him like they did. So if that's what life is going to be like for you and me, if that's going to be the norm, if that's going to be the rule, <clears throat> what else is true? Wouldn't it be also fair to say, look, if, if a lot of our certainty is going to be based off of indirect evidence, like evidence in exoplanets, um, isn't that going to mean that there's going to be a lot of doubt? And what Luke is going to say is, is yes, there is going to be doubt. Um, but the good news is that our Lord... Our master, our judge, the holy one who reigns and lives in heaven has actually made provision for doubt. In other words, you're never condemned. You're never scorned and shamed because of your doubt or because of your weakness. He actually makes provision for it. And doubt can do one of two things in us. Doubt, if it's left unattended or if it's left unaddressed, you know where it will lead eventually? It will lead to rejection of Jesus. It will lead to a rejection of the gospel. But... If we will look at our doubt, if we will treat it correctly, if we'll let others minister to us, our, our doubt and our uncertainty can actually turn into faith. It can actually deepen our belief in Jesus. We can have certainty. We can have it. And so the question is, is how? How do we turn our, our doubt and our uncertainty into faith and belief and real certainty? Certainty that's, um, that's award-winning, so to speak. Well, Luke's going to give us uh, three things, uh, simple points this morning. So if you're taking notes, these are my three points. Um, certainty needs others, it needs time, and it needs trust. Certainty needs others, time, and trust. Well, what do I mean by others? Let's uh, reread verses 2 and 3 together, but as we're doing so, imagine a chain. And this chain is made of three links. Okay, And we're going to identify each of these three links. And this chain is a chain of relationships between groups of people and individuals. Um, so as we go back through, kind of have, have those lenses on as we read this, these two verses again together. I'm, I'm going to begin at the, at, the, at the start of verse 2. Luke says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Okay, so this is the first link. Who are those people? Who are the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the Word? These are the apostles, right? These are the people that that walked and spent three years of their life with Jesus, right? 
They saw him before the crucifixion. They saw him after the crucifixion. They saw him go in the tomb. And then he visited them in the upper room and they saw him in his resurrected body. They saw him. They were eyewitnesses. And then what did they do? They went out and shared this gospel, this news, this message of certainty, if I can put it that way, to other people, right? So these are like people like the apostles and even, even Paul himself. Because Paul was an eyewitness of Jesus, right? The resurrected Jesus. Paul saw him as a minister of the word, an eyewitness of the risen Jesus Christ, right? That's the first link. What did these guys do with their certainty? What did they do with their faith? Look at the end of verse 2. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have what? Have delivered them to us. What's the next link? The next link here is, is people like Luke, the gospel writers. Right? These apostles and the ministers of the word took their certainty and they gave it and transmitted it to other people, other writers. So we could actually have it on paper and have all of these oral traditions and stories and truths about God and about Jesus recorded. But the chain doesn't stop there. Where do these writers and where do Luke, um, where do they transmit their certainty to? Look at verse 3. Again, Luke speaking. He says, It seemed good to me also, now having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Again, Theophilus, another Greek, another doubter, somebody who's been instructed in his youth but who is struggling with doubt. What does Luke do with his certainty? He transmits it to another person. Okay, so when you stand back and you look at what's happening here in verse 2 and 3, you know, just as like a, like a cold virus is transmitted from person to person interpersonally, so is certainty. In other words, to put it another way, certainty does not happen in a vacuum and in a relational and a communal vacuum. Oftentimes, isolation and doubt go hand in hand. Where does certainty come from? Certainty that makes you want to move, that makes you want to act. It comes from other people. And the question that this, uh, this, this text asks us this morning is, well, what kind of others, what kind of other people does certainty require? And, and a couple of things here for us. First, it requires an informed and a gracious confidant. Informed confidant and a gracious confidant, right? Remember, Luke, is not, he's not an eyewitness, Luke was not a disciple. He did not see everything that the disciples saw. Luke is a convert. He looked at the data. Remember what the passage says? He, he, he made an account of things, and he was convinced that this gospel was true. Right? So he was informed. He studied. He looked at the Old Testament. He looked at the New Testament. But it's not just information. Right? It's, it's not just speak the truth, but it's speak the truth in love. He was a gracious confidant. Right? What do you do if you have to repeat yourself to, to younger people, right? Do you kind of do like what I do? Is, is, you know, in my head, I'm just you know, doing the face palm and the, you know, the surrender cobra. Have you heard about that? The surrender, just like, people, come on, let's take it from the top, right? Get with it. Pay attention to the words that are coming out of my mouth. Information. I'm, 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 t- I'm tempted to, uh, to shame and to scorn. But you don't see any of that in Luke, do you? It's almost as, as if he's, he's implying and, and saying that, you know, there's, there's room for doubt in the faith. There's room. There's provision. It's okay, my most excellent Theophilus. Let me, let me help. No embarrassment, no scorn, no shame. Just graciousness. It takes, it takes a confidant like this. But it also takes 
a courageous and a very humble doubter. In other words, one of the worst things you can do with your doubt is keep it to yourself. Is to recluse yourself and to isolate yourself. That's about the worst thing you could tack on top of your doubt. And maybe what you need to hear this morning is, is, is this. It's is much like Theophilus. Again, we don't know how, but somehow he, he conveyed this to Luke. He confided in Luke. There are doubts in my head, and I'm struggling. That takes humility, and it takes courage. It really does to say, maybe I don't believe what I think I believe, and, and will you help? Or will you send somebody to help? Again, the worst thing you can give your doubt is, is isolation and to keep it private. Share that secret with someone else. Um, certainty doesn't just need others. It, doesn't, it isn't just transmitted uh, through other people. Certainty also needs, it needs time. We need to be patient. Um, let's do this. Uh, as, as we look at the events here in this passage, let's, let's imagine them all on, on a timeline, chronologically, okay? And here's where we're going to start the stopwatch. We're going to start it where Luke hears of the need, um, where he hears the doubts of Theophilus. Okay, so we're going to start the stopwatch right there, and we'll end it here in just a second, okay? But that's where this passage starts, all right? Somehow Luke finds out about Theophilus' doubt, okay? And then what happens after that is is Luke kind of considers and goes, okay, how do I respond uh, to my friend? And he decides, well, I'm going to write a letter. And not just any ordinary letter. I'm going to consider things closely. This is going to be an orderly account. And he, and he tells us what he does. He goes and visits the eyewitnesses, these ministers of the word. That's going to take a lot of time. Okay, that's a lot of traveling. That's a lot of conversations. People who saw these things firsthand. And he's going to compile and he's going to collect and he's going to put all of this data into a letter. Right? So after all the interviews have been done, after all the interaction has taken place, he begins to compile a letter. Now, if you and I were to receive a handwritten note from somebody, let's call it a page or two, we would think, man, it's like Christmas all over again. Like a letter, especially handwritten, that's, that's very special. You'd feel loved, right? This was no ordinary one or two page handwritten letter. I did a little exercise this week. I, I went to my, my, my Bible software on my computer, and I copied... I selected and copied the entire book of Luke. And then I went to a word processing you know, document, and I pasted it. Single-spaced it, normal 12-size font, just to see how long that letter would be if it was typed. You know how long it was? It was 30 pages. Who would you write a 30-page letter to or for? Who would you do that to or for? How long would it take you to do something like that, right? To carefully give an account, to compile data, to write a 30-page letter to a friend. And this is like the, uh, the no-duh moment of, of this morning. Um, you know, they didn't have FedEx. They didn't have email. And so once the letter was done, it somehow had to get to Theophilus, right? And that took time. All right, now hit the stopwatch again. Stop time. Is that a short amount of time we just described, or are we talking about a long period of time? We don't know how much exactly, but it feels really, really long, doesn't it? That takes a lot of time. Certainty takes a lot of time. And so what does that mean for us this morning? Well, it means, again, two things. It means when it comes to providing certainty for other people as they approach us, 
if they feel like we're, we're safe and they feel like we're informed. Certainty is not the short game. To help ensure certainty is to, at the same time, engage in the long game. It's to say, hey, there, there's not a lot of certainty that we can give in one conversation or in one letter. This is going to take time. And so for you, if, if you kind of find yourself playing the role of Luke in some ways, please know there's not a lot of certainty that you have to give in one conversation. Give it time. Give it relationship. Uh, it takes patience in composing certainty and presenting it to other people. That's okay. It doesn't have to be in one conversation. And similarly, you may be here this morning and, and you've got doubts, not little ones, I mean big ones. I'm not sure Jesus is who he says he is, and I'm not sure he can promise what he says he can promise. And this whole religion and this whole Christianity thing, yeah, the jury's still out on that one uh, for me. What Luke is communicating to you this morning uh, is, is this, is that certainty as well, it takes time. It takes patience. Theophilus had to wait a really long time for this letter to arrive. And again, if you're anything like me, I want the answers I want when I want them. That is my flesh. And what Luke here is communicating about the, the gospel economy is progress happens in seasons. It happens in years. It doesn't happen in hours or days. It takes time. So be patient. If you don't have the answer you want right now, that's okay. There's probably a really good reason for it. Don't leave church just yet. Stick around. Give it a year or two. Don't leave community group just yet. Stick around. Give it a year or two. Give it time. Certainty takes time. Be patient. Last thing certainty needs is trust. It needs trust. Uh, And what do we mean by that? Well, let me illustrate it first. I asked my, my child if I could share this story, and, and she said I could. So I have permission, in case you're, you're wondering down the road. But um, we had a situation a, a couple years ago where um, anxiety and fears uh, were, were just spiking in, in the Patton household. And here's how it would manifest itself. You know, at night, 15 minutes after we put the kids to bed, one or two would mosey out, and it's fear of fill in the blank, something outside, something inside, something under the bed, something inside the closet, you know, it's a, it's a whole medley of things. Peanut butter, we have a peanut butter allergy in our house. All of our kids have it. We don't know where it came from. But, you know, maybe I ingested peanut butter today. I don't know. And it became so regular. And there were times where, you know, it would just, it would delay sleep a couple minutes. And there were other nights where it would delay sleep hours. And it finally got to the point where Paige and I were like, we got to get our head screwed on here. Something, something is really going on w- w- with our child. What? W- what are we going to do? And so we sought a lot of counsel, and I, I forget who to credit this information with, but this has been really helpful for us. This is kind of like our, our new practice when it comes to fear and when it comes to doubt. We do one of two things. And so when it comes to, you know, a, a fear, you know, at night or, or during the day, the first thing we say is this, and it's very similar to the first two points. It's, it, it's okay to be afraid. It really is. You're not going to be in trouble for being afraid. You don't need to be embarrassed that you're afraid, and you don't need to be ashamed that you're afraid. We want our house and our family and relationship to be a safe place for you to say and disclose these fears, okay? So you're not in trouble. Thanks for telling us. Thanks for trusting us. That's the first thing we say. The second thing we say is, is this. Now, knowing what we know about God and knowing what we know about His promises and his goodness, that he's a shield, 
and that He is a high tower, and that for His people, He's a place of refuge. Knowing what we know about God, we can't stay afraid. It's okay to be afraid, but we can't stay there, okay? So what we would do is we would crawl in bed with, with said child, and we would pray things like, Lord, you're, you're our shield and our high tower. Help. Help take this fear away. Replace it with faith, with certainty. Replace it with belief. And sometimes we prayed that once a night. Sometimes we prayed that three or four times a night. Sometimes we prayed that eight or nine times a week. And it was prayers building on top of prayers. It almost became redundant. We almost felt like we are just kind of saying the words. And then one day, I'll, I'll never forget, we're at a PTA meeting at our kids' school. Our kids go to East North Street. And, you know, it was, you know, like any other PTA night, it was pizza, soda, and cookies. And we all get our plates, and we sit down in the cafeteria. And, um, and I looked over on, on my daughter's plate, and there were these cookies. And I could see the gears cranking. And I could see the, the anxiety spiking and the tears starting to flow. And I said, you're scared that there's peanut butter in those cookies, aren't you? And she said, yeah. I said, okay. We can do one of two things. I said, we can stay afraid. And we can just, you know, wrap these up in a, in a, in a napkin and throw them away. And no harm done. Or, option two, because of what we know of God and because um, your daddy loves you and wants to protect you and care for you, you can eat the cookies because I saw the package that they came in and what looks like peanut butter is actually just just vanilla filling. These cookies aren't going to hurt you. So do you want to stay afraid or do you want to eat? And boy, I just went, oh, this is either the best move or the worst move altogether. Um, and, and, and she said, I'll trust. I'll, I'll eat. I don't know what happened at that PTA meeting. I forget what, what we were even meeting or talking about, but I'll never forget it. And the reason why certainty needs trust, and the reason why the, the point here is trust and, and not truth, is, is that truth is information. But when you take that information and you give it feet, that's what turns into trust. Trust is truth with feet. It's taking what we know and what we understand, these truths about God, these promises, and acting on them, enabling them, leaning on them, trusting in them. It's eating the cookie. Despite present circumstances, despite fear, it's saying, I'm going to trust in this, not this. It's acting and it's moving. Yes, trust involves information. It does. And, and, and Luke even mentions this in this verse. I mean, Theophilus is, is not uneducated. He is not uninformed. He says, you have been taught these things. Theophilus has truth. But what Luke needed, what Theophilus needed, what you and I need is, is, is we need truth with feet. We need to trust. and We need to take what we know and act on it. And the question that this begs then is, is, well, how do we know if we take the truths of God, if we take these truths and we give them feet, that we'll have certainty, that we won't trust in vain? And Luke actually gives provision for that too in this passage. Um, he mentions the accomplished things in verse 1. Did you see that? He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of what? 
things that have been accomplished. In the Greek, this is one word. Fulfilled things. Accomplished things. Luke's not really interested in current events. He's not trying to say, here's some really neat things that can give you certainty that are kind of like happening right now. No. Look at what's happening now and connect it to the past. There's, there's a prophecy in Micah that talks about a virgin birth in Bethlehem. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that talks about this forerunner, this herald who's going to come. And from the wilderness, he's, he's going to scream, make way, make straight the paths of this Redeemer who is coming. Very specific prophecies. Isaiah will later say that this, this Redeemer who's coming is, is going to be from uh, the stump that's Jesse. There's going to be a shoot, a branch that comes off. This Redeemer is going to come from Jesse. He's going to be an heir of David, a son of David. And, and, and wouldn't you know that Luke, his first three stories in Luke deal with a virgin giving birth in Bethlehem? Very specific. Second story, and, and, and Luke does this more than any other gospel writer, he spends a lot of time, a lot of ink on John the Baptist. Why? Because he's saying, look, what Isaiah was prophesying, what he was saying way back here is actually coming to fruition now. This is an accomplished thing. And in, in Luke's genealogy, who does he reference Jesus to? David. He's a son of David. See, in Theophilus, don't just look at what's happening here, but connect it to the past. Look at these things that are being fulfilled, that are being accomplished. How do you know that if you take the truths of God and you put feet on them, that you won't do so in vain, that you won't be disappointed? Because look, he's been true to his word. Look at this account. Look at these ordered things. Look at how things are playing out. These aren't like fortune cookies that are very general, right? Bad things are going to happen today. Good things are going to happen today. No, very, very specific. Look at how they're being fulfilled in the here and in the now. How do you know you can trust God? How do you know you can give His promises feet? Because look, look at what He's doing. He's good to His Word. Um, let me close with this. Um, certainty needs others. It needs time. It needs trust. It means taking the cookie and eating it. Um, but certainty is, is gifted. It is a gift. True certainty is gifted. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, imagine that you're in a situation much like Luke where, where someone before you is, is wrestling with doubt and with struggle. And again, hasn't rejected the truth, but it's just it's struggling. Really, can it be this good? Can there be life everlasting? Can there be a world without sin? All this bad stuff is going away. Really? It's going to get better? We all struggle with doubt in some way. Imagine... You're having this interaction. Again, our temptation is, is to want to instruct, give information. Um, but we need certainty. We need trust. We need proof. Imagine that you're standing before God and, and the criteria and the requirements for salvation in, in this economy is you have to live your life 100% and completely doubt-free. You may never internally or externally doubt the promises of the Father. You can never be wishy-washy. You can never ride the fence. It's got to be 100% belief in everything the Father has said 100% of the time. If that was the criteria and the requirements for salvation, how would you and I be doing and faring today? We'd be in the soup, right? That is bad news. That is bad news. Luke goes on to say, well, here's what the good news is. In describing the life of Jesus throughout the rest of his gospel, he describes him this way, as a man of belief. 
as a man of faith. In other words, he took the promises of the Father, this is Jesus Christ, and he took all of the promises, 100% of the time, and gave him feet. He trusted. He believed inwardly, outwardly. One quick example. Luke 3 ends the genealogy by saying, Jesus was the Son of God. Not only is He the Son of Mary, but He is the divine. He is, the, he is God Himself. He is the Son of God that we've been waiting for. And then what happens in chapter 4? He goes out into the wilderness. He's, he's, he's tempted. He's been fasting. And, he, and, he's, and he's tempted by the evil one himself, Satan, with three temptations, right? What's the similarity between all three temptations? It's the prologue. How does Satan begin the temptation? If you really are what? If you really are the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God, turn these breads to stone. If you really are the Son of God, jump. Right? Satan wants Jesus to say, take my truth and put feet on them. Act on these truths. And Jesus has a choice. He can say, okay, I can take that truth, act on it, or I can take the truths of my Father and give those feet. I can act on those. And every time what Jesus does is He says, I'm going to take my Father's word for it. I'm going to put feet on His promises and His truths. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Every temptation, every struggle was met with certainty, perfect belief. What does that have to do with with you or with me? Well, where did His certainty and where did His faith get Him? It got him where the Father promised it would get him. It got him back into the heavenly realms. It got him at his right hand. It got him back in the presence of the Father for all eternity. Again, what does that have to do with us? Well, here's here's what Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke. And this is my paraphrase. Jesus says, you know, all of your doubt and your uncertainty, all your fear, all your back and forth things, some days you have faith and some days you don't. For those days that you don't, I'll pay for those. I'm going to cover those. And and my perfect certainty, my perfect trust, my perfect belief in the Father and all of His promises, I'm actually going to gift that to you. You're going to wear it like a robe. So when the Father looks at you, He sees a perfect Son. Undeserved, yes. Still sinning, yes. Still struggle with doubt, yes. But when the Father looks at you, He sees you in Jesus' clothes. And the question is, is where did those clothes get Jesus? It got Him to the right hand of the Father. Where did those clothes get you and I? In the exact same spot. We get the Father. We get His presence. Not just here, but now and forever. We need a certainty and we need a belief that's gifted to us. Undeserved, but gifted to us. Close with the words of Jesus I think this is what he was getting at when Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen. Blessed are those who have looked at all the indirect evidence. Blessed are those who have not seen and what? And believed. Blessed are you. Let's pray. Lord, we truly do want to be blessed by you, and we have been. But we know that what you require of us, uh, you also give us. And so would you turn our doubt and our disbelief, whether quiet or explicit, would you yank those out from underneath us and through other believers 
and through time and through trust. Would you give us faith and would you give us belief? In the meantime, give us patience with one another and give us patience with ourselves. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. We thank you for your provision, even in the midst of doubt. Father, we ask that it would not lead to rejection, that it would not lead to despair, but turn it and use it for faith, for hope, and for belief, but ultimately for your glory. And we pray this again in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.